Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, I'm reliably informed that for the first time in eight years, you've updated your Twitter avatar. Care to comment? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm happy you noticed because I think you're the only one who noticed. Uh, well, so my avatar for eight or so years is... Uh, me on a scooter in, uh, I think it was Florence, Italy. Um, and I, you know, it's a thing I, I do. I like to, to rent scooters, but you know, I'm 48, you know, fifties around the corner. And I told myself on my 47th birthday that by 50, I'm going to, I'm going to buy myself a motorcycle because I like two wheels. I just like, I love bicycles. I love scooters. And now I got a motorcycle license and I bought a motorcycle just last week. Um, so I've changed my avatar. So it's still kind of, you don't see my face. I'm still on two wheels, uh, but uh, the engine is slightly stronger. Right. So basically you were thinking about uh, nearing 50, staring mortality in the face, and you thought you might accelerate the process a little. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure about the mortality part, but uh, you know, are, you know, aren't, you know, we supposed to be going through a midlife crisis around this time, fancy sport cars. Uh, I felt, I figured this was a, I was about to say safe, but it was uh, not a safe way. But uh, it's it's my way. I just I just like two wheels, and fuck it, I don't care if it's dangerous. Um, they're so much fun, and uh, and you only live once. Right. So, listeners, just keep in mind, I'm auditioning for a co-host. You can send applications to. Um, okay, uh, I think we should stop dicking around and introduce our guest. What do you think? I think we definitely uh, should not keep her waiting. Awesome. Uh, so we're really excited uh, to have Maria Konnikova joining us today. Um, she's an author and a journalist who also has a PhD in social psychology from Columbia University, where she worked with Walter Michel, one of the legends of psychology. Um, she's a contributing writer to The New Yorker, and it's for her work there that she won the 2019 Excellence in Science Journalism Award from the Society of Personality and Social Psychology. I think I might have actually been in the audience when she won this award. She's the author of three books, uh, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, and The Confidence Game. And her latest book, The Biggest Bluff, is about how she accidentally became an international poker champion and professional poker player. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So um, as we were just explaining, uh, we start the show by talking about what we're drinking. And uh, you have uh, a mystery drink provided by your husband. Is that right? That is correct. So can you explain to our uh, audience the mystery drink? Yes, it is a bourbon. And it's called Taylor. And this is, I, I don't want to let the secret out, but this is such an undervalued brand of bourbon. Everyone's into like Pappy Van Winkle and all of that stuff. But this one is really delicious. And the price point is one that you can actually afford, unlike Pappy. So cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Mickey? Uh, yeah, so I... I've got a uh, a big big bottle of uh, um, FMR. So this is a uh, 750 milliliter bottle. So I'm just going to have one of these. I'm not having two of these. Um, uh, so FMR is uh, brewed by Unibrew, and which is you know one of my favorite brewers in the world, probably after uh, a Bellwood Brewery here in Toronto. And uh, they're from Quebec, from Chambly, Quebec. And FMR is their seasonal beer. They put out two different ones, one in the fall and one in the spring. And sadly, fall is, you know, right around the corner and they released one uh, just uh, recently. And this one is interesting because it's, um, it's usually a, a fruit element and this one, the fruit is a fruit I've never heard of. Sea uh, buckthorn berry. I have no idea what that is. Never heard of it. <laughs> nope. Me, me neither. neither. Zero for uh, three. They look like dates. Uh, uh, I like know, dates. In, in the, yeah. So uh, I will I will I will taste it and uh, let you know. What do you think? It's delicious. Um, I'm not yet quite sure what buckthorn berry, sea buckthorn berry, actually tastes like. It tastes uh, tastes like beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Yoel? What do you got? Uh, I'm uh, joining Maria in the bourbon. Um, this is just some Knob Creek, though, so it's you know totally fine. So cheers, everybody. Yeah, cheers, cheers everybody. guys. And welcome to the show. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I want to give you all shit just a little bit before we we start asking some questions. Please do. Hey, Yoel, are you, 
are you is this a permanent shift like is this like fuck it you're not drinking beer anymore it's just like i don't care about mickey no 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 that's not the case and i know we've gotten a lot of uh polite but pointed feedback from our listeners demanding that i drink more beer and i promise those listeners and you there will come a day where i resume drinking drinking beer it's it's just not going to be today Hold on, I, I do have to interject because I was told that I was going to be on a, on a podcast called Two Psychologists and a Beer. So, of course, I assumed that beers would be had. Now, I personally don't like beer, so, and I'm the guest, so I get to do what I want. So bourbon, <laughs> bourbon was what I was going to do. But you guys as the hosts, I'm surprised that the title of your podcast doesn't necessarily telegraph the actual content would you call this misleading advertising yeah i I think some of our (laughs) listeners might take your side there and i don't like that you're encouraging mickey who (laughs) does not need any encouragement you know mickey and i had a chance mickey and i had a chance to bond before the podcast started before the alcohol started flowing so this was a completely sober bonding i feel like we know each other yeah, now you've decided to gang up on me. That's nice. It's okay, Yoel. We we will have the opportunity to gang up on Mickey together. I I'm an all I'm an equal opportunity ganger upper. Well, I hope so. Um, okay, <laughs> so we are actually supposed to be talking about stuff other than um, what we're drinking. Oh, so yeah. I mean, <laughs> or, or we could again, just false advertising. I was told yeah. two psychologists. This is just going to be an hour of beer chat. What? That's like. What an amazing concept for a podcast. Um, I would like to know a bit about uh, how you got here. So I would say you've had kind of an unusual career path. And that's something that a lot of our listeners who, you know, they they tend to be academics or academic adjacent, um, and a lot of them kind of earlier career. That's something they're often interested in. Uh, So I'd like to just start by exploring that a a little. Um, So first of all, how did you decide to get a PhD in social psych? Because that it doesn't seem like an obvious career choice to do that. <laughs> no. So, so when I was an undergraduate, um, I studied psychology and also creative writing and also government. I kind of studied all of these things that interested me. And when it came time to do my senior thesis, I decided I was going to do one that spanned the interesting, the things that I found interesting about government. It was actually international relations, but I might as well. I went to undergrad at Harvard and they called it government, which is a really like BS way of of calling whatever normal people call political science or IR or whatnot. So I wanted to study what interested me about that, but with the psychology. So I ended up doing a joint thesis and I had two advisors, one in the psych department and one in the government department. And I studied decision-making. Um, but I used a very specific approach. I used psycholinguistics because my psychology advisor, well, I guess, is it an advisor when it's undergrad? I don't even remember. Yes? Mentor. A mentor, yes. My psychology mentor was Steven Pinker, who obviously was from a very psycholinguistics-y background. And that's actually what, that's what I was interested in originally. I'm Russian. I was born in Russia. I was born in Moscow. It was actually the Soviet Union back then. English is my second language. And so from... You know, from a very, very early age, I was fascinated by language and by how our brain perceives language and words. And that was, that was the thing that really intrigued me originally about psychology. But you could already see that my transition was happening to decision making because of the political science international relations aspect. And so I decided to do that as a thesis, but I don't know why I, I loved the brain, but I always, I wanted to write and I knew I was, I wanted to be a writer. And so I did this and I went to Georgia, post Soviet Georgia, the country, not the, not the state, multiple civil wars going on. And I, I had, uh, the former presidents, two of them take different psycholinguistic tests. And I had them actually, like, I, I, I interviewed them, I recorded this, and I did some score sheets of, you know, how often they use different pronouns and different things. And I'm laughing now because it's kind of hilarious that I was able to do this. But it was because I had no concept of, wait, what in the world are you doing? This is kind of crazy. Um, and it just, I, 
fell in love with the brain, but I also fell in love with writing from a very early age. And I always wanted to marry the two in one combination or another. But after college, um, I became, actually, I was about to say I became a writer. I didn't. That would be a lie. I had about five jobs in my first few months out of college where I was a bartender. I worked in advertising as a copywriter. Um, I briefly worked in the corporate world. I just, I, I did it all. Um, I was a personal assistant and then I ended up in television for a few years and it was fascinating, but I knew I wanted to write and I also knew I wanted to learn more about the brain. I wanted to learn more about the mind, about how we think, what makes humans humans. And I actually think it's, it's a very, it's a very close connection between writing and psychology, between fiction, which is what I studied. I actually studied fiction writing, not nonfiction, um, between fiction and psychology. Because to be a good novelist, to be a good poet, to be a good writer, you need to understand humans. You need to be a good observer of human nature, of humanity, of what makes people tick. So I actually think that some of the best psychologists are writers. And a lot of times you see, you know, Dostoevsky writing something, and then you see a hundred years later psych studies that actually go into the lab and look at this. And you're like, yeah, Dostoevsky told me this a hundred years ago, but I'm glad someone's actually, <laughs> actually proving it in the lab. And so I missed all of that. I missed academia. I missed the, I missed the, the, the thrill of it all. And so I decided that I was going to go to grad school, but in a really, really weird way, um, in the sense that I knew I didn't want to go into academia. I mean, I'm talking to two people who did go into academia, so please take this no, with no offense. But I just, I, I felt that going into academia would close off my abilities to do everything I wanted to do because I knew that it was kind of this publisher parish environment. I knew that you had to be really, really dedicated, and I did not want to do that. And so I went through my grad school interviews when I was applying to, for PhD programs saying this out loud in interviews. That's not a great idea. <laughs> saying, I really want a PhD. I really want to study the brain. But then I want to write about it. I don't actually want to go on the job market. I don't want to become a career psychologist. I don't actually want to be in these schools. I want to write about it. I want to look, but I want to write about it on a deeper level. And there was one man who, when he heard this said, you know what? I wouldn't go into academia these days either if I were you. And that man was Walter Michelle. And he was done taking grad students. So his final grad student was Ethan Cross. That was it. He was done. And Ethan is older than I am. There's a big gap between us of, of several years. I don't remember. I don't want to lie. It's either two or three years, but we never crossed over at Columbia. And Walter had decided that Ethan was going to be his final grad student. And I remember coming in and basically pitching myself and saying, you're not going to have to do anything. I just love you. I love your work. And I knew, I think it sold him that I knew his work past the marshmallow studies. I actually knew everything he'd done since then. And I wanted to work with him. It was actually my first choice. I really wanted to work with Walter Michelle. It was the only reason I had applied to Columbia. And somehow I managed to convince him to take me on. And so everything else went out the window. And I was lucky enough to be able to be Walter Michelle's final grad student. And he knew from the very first day that I wasn't going into academia. And he supported me in that decision. He let me go on a leave of absence while I was at Columbia to write my first book. And it was just such, it was such a rare synergy and such a rare moment of someone just seeing you, understanding what you wanted to do and saying, you know what, let me give you my wisdom. Let me give you this experience I've had over a storied career and you take it and write and go forth and with my blessing, do not go into academia, do not go into the job market, do not do any of that. 
Um, and for that, I am forever grateful to Walter. That's a, that's a great story. Uh, that's remarkably open-minded of, of him. Which I, think, I think you're right. I think most uh, faculty hearing potential graduate students saying, I do not want to go into academia, would be like, that'd be a big red mark. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's right, but that's, I think, uh, what typically happens. Um, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so can you tell us uh, a bit more about, well, so I noticed that, for example, you, I believe you dedicated uh, your latest book. I did. To, yeah, to Walter. Um, yeah, I, I'm happy to tell you about that, because, especially because most people don't ask me about that <laughs> because they don't realize who Walter is and they just kind of go past the dedication. But Walter ended up becoming a real, a close friend and a mentor and just someone who was always willing to share his wisdom. And after I left Columbia, our relationship in some ways became deeper because we'd have dinners together. Um, we would have lunches together. I would go over to his apartment. You know, I'd go over with my husband. We'd have lots of dinners, the four of us. And it was, it was this wonderful relationship where I always felt free to trade ideas and he treated me as an equal. I'm not an equal to Walter Michelle. I mean, Walter Michelle isn't just a legend. I mean, this was a man whose brain was firing on all cylinders until the very last day. I remember the first time we were having dinner um, at our place and we lived in a fourth floor walk-up at that time um, in the West Village. We were actually still in a fourth floor walk-up, but no longer in the in the West Village. And Walter was at, I think, 80, something like that. And his wife was younger, but still, you know, an elderly couple. And so we decided to be really considerate. And I emailed Walter and I said, you know, um, we're in a fourth floor walk up. If you want to have dinner out, we'd be very happy. And he wrote me back and he said, we love stairs. Our Paris apartment is a fifth floor walk up. And that's that single phrase, we love stairs, that just embodies Walter and why he was able to stay as good as he was till the very last day. We love stairs. He didn't think age was a thing that slowed him down. There was no, you know, now I'm kind of done. He just kept going and kept asking questions, kept inquiring, and his work kept changing. So when I started studying with him, I said that I wanted to study self-control and decision-making specifically kind of hot, risky decision-making. And this was back in 08. And if you guys remember 08, you know, stock markets are crashing. <laughs> it's not a good time. And and I had said, you know, why don't we see if self-control helps protect people against making bad decisions in this kind of stock market environment? Is it something that's protective when you're when you're dealing with uncertainty, when you're dealing with a stochastic environment? when you're dealing with volatility, when you're dealing with kind of the, these sorts of decisions. And he said, yeah, that sounds great. You know, did basically the question was, did individuals high in self-control, did they prevent the markets from crashing even further? And so we set up studies. We, we tried to kind of figure out how we were going to study this. Um, I found the stock market task. We, we did all these things. And oh, my God. We got our first study results back and the people who scored highest on all the measures of self-control. And we, we got these measures all from the Bing sample. Um, the Bing sample for people who don't know, although I'm guessing your, your listeners probably all know were the original marshmallow study sample. So we have all of their measures over a lifetime or 40 years. Um, and so if we're able to take those exact measures and put them to a new sample, you still have them kind of validated over time with people whose results we know. So the people who are scoring the highest on self-control are the ones who are doing the worst in these decision tasks and making the worst choices in these stock market environments. And I gave Walter this data and most people would say, do this again. And he was like, this is fascinating. We need to figure out why. And we figured out the what he called, he was the one who came up with the term, the Achilles heel of high self-control. That when you come into a stochastic environment where your actual control goes out the window, if you're someone who's used to being in control, 
you are much more likely to fall prey to the illusion of control. You're much more likely to think that you are controlling events longer than you are. You're much less likely to look at negative feedback from the environment. Instead, you dismiss it because normally you're right. And normally you're right to dismiss that feedback. And Walter was so excited. He said, this is amazing. We found something bad about self-control. And this was, to see him excited about that, it just, that's what a good researcher is. Self-control is what he spent his, a lot of his career showing the the good things about self-control. And he was fascinating that finally we found the Achilles heel, the illusion of control. And this just really stayed with me. And the book is really, my book is about skill versus chance, actual control versus the illusion of control. And so in some ways, the seeds of the biggest bluff were planted in my laboratory work with Walter Michel. Well, that's a, that's an amazing story. And it, I'm actually curious, um, what happened to those findings? Like, is that, uh, <laughs> can our readers check out that paper? Um, well, as, as my dedication shows, Walter, um, for years and years kept pestering me to write up the damn paper <laughs> and publish it. <laughs> and I, and I kept promising him I would. And it's not, he wasn't sick for very long. He was only sick for a few months. Um, and so, I mean, this sounds terrible. Had I known he was dying, I would have gotten my shit together and, and published the damn thing. And I didn't. Um, I'd seen, I saw him a few months before his death and, you know, he wasn't looking great. He had just fallen. And I talk, I, I wrote, I wrote his obituary for the New Yorker. Um, and I talk about this, you know, he had a big bruise over half his face and that was very unlike Walter, but he wasn't lying to me. He didn't yet know how sick he was. Um, and he said, oh, you know, it was just, it was an accident. It was stupid. And then a few months later he was dead. And I, I wish I'd published it and I never did. And in some ways, this book, you know, I, I summarize our findings. My dissertation is online. <laughs> we, um, you can, you can see that, but I do. I mean, I hope somebody publishes it. I keep telling people, if you want this data, we ran thousands of subjects. We have amazing data on all of these things. Take it, use it in your meta-analysis, use it in your paper. Um, so far, nobody's taken me up on it, but we have a lovely data set <laughs> in case anyone listening wants it. I was going to say, I think all you need is the right enthusiastic grad student as a co-author to take this thing over. Well, that's the so, thing, because my, you know, I'm not going to do the, the requisite revisions and stats analyses right now. Whichever analyses I ran when I was a grad student, that's what they're getting. And if they want something else, I honestly, I don't even have SPSS on my computer anymore. <laughs> I, I can't do it. <laughs> or MATLAB. MATLAB's gone. All of these things are gone. And I don't even know. Maybe the maybe the new software is actually something different from the two that I've yeah, just Yeah, I named. was about to say that everybody's using R now anyway. Uh, well, see, R was just starting out when I was in grad school. And everyone was very cool when they were using R. And I never used R. I used SPSS and MATLAB. Yeah, it's it's still like I, I would say got a little bit of the cool kids vibe, but it's rapidly becoming just the standard thing that you're I love how we just, how did we end up on stat software? That seems like, <laughs> like a weird, let's just say if anybody is interested in collaborating with Maria on publishing these findings, uh, our DMs are open. <laughs> you mentioned something in, in your book, your latest book, uh, The Biggest Bluff, um, which I, it, it really kind of uh, made me think. Um, and that was, it relates to what you were just talking about, you know, in terms of your, your desire to go into academia or not, you know, not having that desire, desiring something else. And at one point you started saying, you know, what is actually more of a gamble? Um, you know, playing at, you know, playing a hand of poker, playing in a, in a, in a poker tournament or getting a PhD and, you know, gambling, um, on the job market. So, and, and you, you know, you, you just kind of left it as a question. You didn't answer that question. But uh, well, what do you think? I mean, in terms of uh, you know, what is worth pursuing? This is advice now you're giving our, our listeners. Okay, I, I don't want to give this as advice. However, if you're speaking objectively in terms of let's quantify what is controllable versus what is not, 
This is the one thing. So the biggest bluff is all about my journey into the world of poker. And I ended up becoming a professional poker player, even though I'd never played before. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, I ended up doing quite well. That's why I went pro. And this was not something I ever expected. So the one of the main lessons of poker is to learn to separate the process, your decision process from the decision outcome. You control the process. That's something that you can actually do. That's the skill. What information are you using to make a decision? How are you using it? How are you weighting it? How are you crafting this algorithm in your brain that spits out a solution? I'm going to do this. That is all within your control. However, poker, like life and everything in it, is a game of incomplete information. So you never know all of the variables, right? There's uncertainty and there's just lack of future knowledge because you don't know what cards are coming. And so you need to make the best decision you possibly can with the information you have, knowing that you don't actually control the cards, you don't control the outcome. And so it's a very common thing in normal life. And we see it in the psychology lab all the time where you conflate outcome with process, where you take the outcome and you say, oh, okay, this was a good decision because it turned out well. This was a bad decision because it turned out poorly. Poker teaches you that that ain't right. You know, you can come in as a 75% favorite and guess what's going to happen 25% of the time? (laughs) You're going to (laughs) lose. And that means you, that does not mean you should make a different decision. You should keep taking that decision every single time because over time you're going to win, right? And if you take the, if you're the 25% underdog and you end up winning, that doesn't mean you're a genius and you knew the cards that were coming. I hate it. Poker players will say all the time, oh, I knew the ace was coming. I knew this was coming. No, you didn't. And uh, I think, I think we're pretty, we're pretty good that side does not exist and that, and that we do not yet have any good psych studies that show precognition is an actual thing. Um, so in the absence, Daryl Bem might argue with you. I know Daryl Bem will argue with me, and I actually <laughs> argued with him in a prior book um, where I where I picked apart his findings. But we we don't have to go there. But that's not to. <laughs> <laughs> but unless you know, unless we have, I'm happy to be persuaded. But as of now, I don't find anything persuasive. So you don't know the card that's coming, and if you made that decision, you're an idiot who got lucky. You're not a sudden genius. And so it's very, very important to separate the two. And in poker, you can actually control a lot. You can control your decision process. You can control your emotions, your actions, your reactions. And skill is a huge part of the game. In the immediate term, luck is big. One hand, one game, anyone can win. Over the long term, the variance is going to even out and the best players are going to come away with all the money. On the job market and psychology, that simply is not the case. I mean, think about what you're controlling. You're controlling, sure, you're controlling your own work and you're, you controlled who you work with to a certain extent. You know, how were people feeling the day that they saw your application <laughs> and where were you actually expect, accepted? There's a degree of luck in that. You know, had I talked to Walter when he'd gotten two hours of sleep and he was in a bad mood because he was in a fight with someone, I wouldn't have gone to Columbia. You know, I got into a lot of other schools and he probably wouldn't have accepted me. And I would never have gone had Walter not wanted to work with me. It was a one one person thing. It wasn't like I was, I wanted to go to Columbia. I wanted to go to Walter. You can see his day going differently and that thing being completely different, even though my application and me and my background and all of these things remain exactly the same. So there's luck in that. But now you're already in your grad program and you control your studies and all of these things. And sure, there are internal politics, but you, you get, you know, you get to the end, you go on the job market. Okay. Imagine me. Let's just use my example because I know my field or I used to know my field. It's been a while. (laughs) It's been over 10 years, but, but I used to know my field and. Let's pretend I'm on the job market. Actually, it's not been quite over 10 years. It's been less than 10 years. I don't, I don't want to age myself. <laughs> so let's, let's fact check and correct me. Um, but, you know, imagine me going on the job market. Imagine me going somewhere 
where there's a very strong personality psychology faculty. Imagine me going somewhere where, can I name names or is it bad? Oh, no, trash talk whoever you like. All right, where, you know, where you've got the funders of the world or where you've got, you know, some some Floridians of the world. I'm, I, I, won't, I, I won't go that far, but, but where you've got the Bullmeisters of the world, sorry, <laughs> um, going. And imagine me going on that job talk with Walter as my main advisor. How's that going to go? I mean, I might have really great data and I might have a lovely job talk and I might have really persuasive evidence. They are going to fight tooth and nail against me because I represent everything that their careers are against. And that is not something I can control. I don't know if that person's going to be in the audience. I don't know how that's going to go. I don't know what the fads are going to be. I would have been screwed as someone going on the job market when I graduated in social psychology. I know the people who got tenure at Columbia when I would have gone on the job market. No social psychologists did. And two of the people on my dissertation committee did. Um, that was Kevin Oxmer and Daphna Shohami, and they're wonderful, and I love them. And other than Walter, they were the two people I worked with the most at Columbia. But they do they don't do just they don't do social psych. They embrace social psych. That's why they were on my committee. But they also do neuroscience, and they do kind of that hardcore thing. And that was the fad. And at the time, social psych was so on the outs; it wasn't even funny. And that's not something I can control. That's not something that can reflect on my work in any way. It's just where the field is. And Walter was livid about this, actually. He loved Kevin and Daphna, absolutely loved them and thought that they absolutely deserved tenure, but thought that other people deserved tenure too. And that people were going too far into the brain and too far away from theory and from big ideas and from being willing to go out on a limb and say, you know what, I don't know what part of the brain does this and it doesn't matter. Let me establish the groundwork. That's what his work was about. And he actually said that he probably wouldn't have gotten a job had he gone on the job market today because he was doing something totally different. And he felt that academia had gotten very close-minded, that they were focusing on the wrong things, that they weren't rewarding the right sorts of ideas and initiative, and they weren't taking risks on people. And to me, it's just a no-brainer. Of course, poker is the more skill-based endeavor, and the psychology job market is the bigger gamble, because who the hell knows what these people are thinking, how they were feeling the day of your job talk, you know, how they were feeling, whether you're even going to get the chance to do, to give a job talk, because they're, you know, they they decide that they don't want someone like you this year. And all of that is luck. All of that are things that you have zero control over. And... I don't want to be in that situation. That's not a gamble I want to take. Yeah, so I think this comes up a lot even, you know, once you've gotten the job, it's just I think what I tell my students is it's, you know, it's a numbers game in the sense of like you're going to get rejected a lot and that process is extremely noisy and the difference between a successful academic and a less successful one is often just being able to take that rejection and to, you know, fix whatever the reviewers didn't like and resubmit it somewhere else and keep going, right? It's like, it's not about succeeding your first time. It's about taking enough tries that eventually uh, you know, your underlying quality works in your favor, right? So it's a, Volume you just get fewer variance. chances. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a big, it's a big lesson of poker. The only way to beat variance is through volume. Please continue. Right. But like you said, you know, people just don't have the opportunity to apply for that many jobs, right? You're on the market for a few years. And then if you don't get something, then you have to make other plans. So you just sometimes don't have the opportunity to do enough interviews to, uh, to get lucky, right? And, and yeah, I mean, there's many, many things that can go wrong. Um, I actually, I interviewed as a grad student at Columbia, um, and they had us meet Walter, you know, he was like the luminary 
and I just like, I don't know, I, I didn't sleep well. And it, it wasn't, I wasn't at my best. And he asked this question, he asked everybody to go around and say, you know, what they were interested in studying. And that seems like kind of a softball. And I just gave the dumbest fucking answer you can imagine. <laughs> and, and I did not, I was not accepted at Columbia. <laughs> I don't say? even remember. It's, I blocked it out. It was so painful. <laughs> But but yeah, you know, I, I didn't I didn't yeah. get an offer there. Um, and, you know, partly I'm sure that was warranted. But partly it was just like, yeah, I had a had bad night's sleep. And, yeah. Right. Exactly. And exactly. You and you don't I, get I, a redo. I think Walter saw the, the, the real you. Well, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's undoubtedly <laughs> oh my true. God. So so keeping this in mind, like what what would you advise current grad students to do, right? So you're kind of in an unusual situation that you came in being like, I don't want to keep doing this and sort of making alternate plans from day one. What do you think that a grad student who's maybe interested in academia, but maybe also interested in pursuing other options, what should they be doing? I would say be willing to zig and zag, be willing to to swerve, be willing to see what the environment is telling you and take a huge risk. I mean, listen, with the biggest bluff, I took basically a risk that a lot of people told me and smart people, people I really, really respect, told me I was committing career suicide. I left the New Yorker to play poker. Like, let's just, let's just put that out there. I, <laughs> and I'd never played before. It's not like I was like, you know what? I love poker. I just, I've always wanted to do this. It was for the book. It was me saying, in order to do this book well, I need to, oh God, I, I'm about to say it. This is the bourbon. I need to go all in. <laughs> I need to, I need to, I need to commit everything to this. And so people told me, you are insane. People know who you are now. They love your byline. They, they know your name. You're going to disappear for at least a year. No one's going to care. No one, no one's going to care about your book or about you because eyeballs, eyeballs matter. But, but I was willing to do that because I knew exactly why I was doing it. And I knew it, that I wanted to take that risk and that it was going to work out no matter what because I'd make it work out. And if anyone in grad school is trying to figure out, you know, what do I do? I would say just keep your options open because here's what you can't control, the future. <laughs> you have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after, let alone five years from now. You have no idea. And too many people, they have this like multi-step plan. I'm going to do this and I'm going to publish this and then I'm going to do this. And like, this is going to be how my career goes. So many people think that way. And what I would challenge them to do is to say, don't do that. Have, be willing to reassess all the time and be willing to change what your mind, be willing to change your direction all the time if it seems like the right thing to do. Don't just, don't go crazy, but in the right circumstances, given the right set of incentives, be willing to swerve. Be willing to admit that, you know what? I didn't know the me from two years ago didn't know what the me of today would want. You have no idea how many people I've met in graduate programs who are miserable. But hey, they're studying psychology and they're living and breathing proof of the sunk cost fallacy. Well, I've already spent three years in this program. Like, yeah, and it's two more. That's a lot of time. <laughs> You know, if you ain't happy, get out. You don't have to finish your PhD. I'm very glad I finished my PhD. I almost didn't. I actually, so when I went on a leave of absence to write Mastermind, my first book, I um, almost didn't come back because it became a New York Times bestseller and it did really well. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I don't need my PhD. Mommy knows best. My mother was like, you go back and you get that PhD. And she said, you're, you're not, you're going to just... You're never going to forgive yourself if you don't. She was right. And she had a few reasons for saying that. Um, most importantly, that I was female. She said, everyone's always going to be doubting you. You want to be able to throw those three letters in their face. And she's right. I really enjoy throwing those letters in people's faces, especially when I write about psychology and they're like, no, no, I know better. What do you know? And I was like, well, I have a PhD. Do you? And obviously I, I only ask, answer that. I only ask that question knowing the answer is no. 
I, I actually do my homework. And the funny thing is my sister, my sister is an MD PhD. She's a neonatologist and has her own lab at Yale. She's brilliant. Um, she's like, she makes me seem like someone who doesn't know what to do with my life because she's actually saving lives and curing cancer and saving the world. She got really, really mad in my initial TV appearances because no one ever called me doctor. And I actually was on panels where they'd be like, doctor, blah, blah, doctor, blah, blah. Ms. Konnikova. And my sister, I, I, I don't take it personally. Most people, I don't know, almost nobody calls me doctor. But she got really mad. She's like, you have your PhD, you should be doctor as well. And it was a funny thing, but getting my PhD was, enables her to be mad, but also me, if I need to, to pull that card out. And so I'm not saying quit the PhD program. But I am saying be willing to leave if that's not really what you want to do. While I was at Columbia, so this was post-mastermind, but I was back in the program. I still had a few years to go. I had, and I won't, I won't name any of them because this was all in confidence, multiple students who were in the PhD program would email me and say, I don't want to talk to my advisor. I don't want to ask anyone about this, but you know, you're writing, you're, you're doing popular writing, I'm interested in doing that. Can I talk to you? And I had so many illicit coffees off campus so that no one would see them talking to me to actually talk about this as an option. They shouldn't need to do that. This should be open. The fact that you can't talk about what you want to do, the fact that you, the moment that you say, I don't want to be in academia, you know, people basically, you know, there's a cross, <laughs> you're, you're hexed, this is terrible. I think that attitude needs to change. I think that academia needs to become more open-minded. Walter was a painter. Walter created the most beautiful art, and he loved doing it, and he loved reading fiction. And he would always tell me, never change, never stop reading poetry and fiction and all these things that you read, because that's where ideas come from. Don't ever become the person who only reads your specific journals and the specific articles in your field. And everyone else would say everything that I was doing was a waste of time outside of those specific journals and those specific articles. It's a huge mindset shift. And that's what I would, that's what I would tell graduate students to have. Now, I would always, I would also tell them to be smart. I mean, I, I do not advise career suicide. And so I would also say don't do what I did in applying to grad school because I didn't care ultimately if I didn't get in. I could go, I had an MFA program option for me. So I knew if I didn't get into a PhD program, I would be totally fine. And so I also say be realistic and be, be willing to acknowledge reality. And reality is most people are not Walter. And if you say you don't want to go into academia in an interview, you're not getting in. So unless you are 100% certain that you don't want to go into academia, and there's really no such thing as 100% certainty. That's something that poker teaches you. Unless you are so sure and you have multiple other options and you really are willing to walk away and you're just kind of doing this to see if you get in, don't say that. Be smart. You know, say say what people want to hear at the time, but then also know what you want truly in your heart. I realize that you guys as possible advisors are listening to this and cringing because you, you, you probably think, I don't want students who misrepresent what they want to do. But in a way you do, your ideal student would be someone who is hungry and curious and passionate and willing to swerve and follow ideas wherever they may lead even if they're not in a traditional job path, but also someone who's smart and practical and willing to uh, say the things that they say so that you will actually accept them. Um, I think there's so much, so much good advice in there. I, I particularly liked uh, this, this, the advice about, you know, being broad, um, you know, you know, this is beautiful paper that I would used to say, uh, have my, my students read, by Dick Nisbet, it's called um, the Anti Newsletters, and it's kind of like takes the form of a Lewis Carroll story of like a devil trying to tempt students. And you know, the bottom line is, you know, you know, if you want to be a good psychologist, a good academic, a good scholar, like read broadly and widely, and like do not like read JPSP cover to cover. Like, read other things. Like ignore J JPSP. That's probably better. This episode 
we are lucky to be sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. And recently, we've been really getting into a new course called Redefining Reality, the Intellectual Implications of Modern Science on The Great Courses Plus. The course truly looks fascinating. It's taught by an award-winning instructor named Stephen Gimbel, um, who got his PhD in philosophy, but studied physics and philosophy as an undergrad. And you can just tell that this course is a real combination of both physics and philosophy. It's got a bit of a, a philosophy of science feel, heavily focused on physics, however, and there's all kinds of great uh, topics being covered in this course, including uh, special relativity, general re relativity, um, you know, quantum mechanics, chaos theory, grand unified theories, and so on and so forth. It looks looks fantastic, and uh, it, it's intrigued us. So we're really excited uh, that to tell you about the Great Courses Plus because we know you'll love it too. This streaming service has an extensive course library. You can educate yourself on nearly any topic imaginable. So of course, it's got a number of classes on psychology of human behavior, history, um, but also things like improving your cooking skills or even learning how to draw, which is something that I, uh, a course that I quite enjoyed myself. All the content is fact-based, presented by really uh, top professors and experts in their fields. And with the Great Courses Plus app, it's easy to access anytime, anywhere in the world. Now is the perfect time to sign up for the Great Courses Plus. And our listeners can check out any course or lecture for free today. That's a free trial of access to their entire library. Don't wait any longer. Sign up today using our special URL. Start your free trial at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. Thanks to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring today's episode. When he saw Barry, his heart, it sunk. I remember just last week in the corner there, he collapsed in a heap of happy potato faces. And we all just thought the cold was getting to him. Because it does. Maybe the monotony is here to stay, he thought. In every dead end job, in every dead end. I think implicitly a lot of your advice to grad students is have a plan B. Um, and I'm curious, what was your plan B for the book? Because base rates, you don't become a Perku champion. You're like at best mediocre, oh. <laughs> right? So, I mean, no offense, but I just, oh, you absolutely. know, just well, write as a, as a noob. So, so what was your plan? What book were you going to write if you were just like, okay at Perku? Yeah. I mean, it, the book pitch. So the biggest bluff is my third book. And I already knew by that point that you need to do a lot of research before you even submit a proposal, before you even kind of enter this world. And I already knew at the time that there was a good chance that I'd never do much. My pitch wasn't about being successful in poker. It was about going on the journey. It was about the process, not the outcome. <laughs> it was about learning to differentiate skill from chance, or as I write in my dedication to Walter, the things we can control and the things we can't control, learning to tell the two apart. That was always my challenge. That's what inspired me on this journey, and that's what I wanted to answer. And so the book was always going to work whether or not I did well, because I would have taken lessons from it no matter what. And it was going to be a very different book if I ended up not being good at poker. Don't get me wrong. The fact that I not only was good, but got very, very lucky to win a major title 
Um, that is huge. I mean, nobody cares about who came in second place in a major tournament. Nobody. That person's name is just erased from history. Had I had a few unlucky hands and made the final table, but not one, different story. Never would have been sponsored by Poker Stars. Never would have had the resources to go full time and really dedicate myself to this. Never would have had the chance to really explore it in the way that I did. Still a book but a very different book. Um, and so the book was always going to be about my journey. Um, and I had, I don't use outlines. I can't plan ahead. I am a mess. Whenever people ask me what my writing process is, I cringe and say, you don't want my writing process because it stresses me out just thinking about it because it's just me vomiting on a page and then kind of trying to figure out <laughs> what, what happens from there. And it's always how I've been, and I've never been able to change it. And I've tried. I've tried to be organized. I've tried to have plans. I've tried to have kind of things that I do. It, it just doesn't work for me. And so my proposal was never an outline. This is, this is how the book is going to go. It was more of a, this is the spirit of the book, and this is what I want to explore. Let's see where it takes us. In the book, I mean, you, it's apparent that you have this plan, this kind of plan of like, you know, uh, playing in this one important tournament in Vegas uh, within a year. Um, but just, just like the advice you just gave to graduate students, you, you know, quickly realized maybe that plan needed to be changed. Yes, but I didn't change it. Um, I actually, I was living and breathing proof of the chasm between theory and practice and that knowing all of these biases and studying them in the lab and having a PhD in psychology doesn't mean shit when it comes to actually being able to do this in real life. And I, so I had a lot of, this is a lot of fallacies into one. So I had the planning fallacy where things take a lot longer <laughs> than you think they're going to take, sunk cost fallacy, all, all of these things. Um, and, and also my ego, that's not a fallacy, but it should be, we should have the ego fallacy. Can we create it right now? Sure. <laughs> yes. Being, too, being too worried about how you look on the outside and not realizing that nobody else gives a damn. Nobody cares about you as much as you care about you. You think everyone's paying attention and nobody really is. So I had that fallacy in there too, because I had said in my mind that I was going to play this event. And so I was going to play it. Otherwise it was going to be a huge blow to my reputation. No, it wouldn't have been. Nobody, nobody cared, but in my mind, everyone cared. So anyhow, I, it was going to be a year after I started that the main event of the World Series of Poker was going to happen, which is this $10,000 buy-in tournament, huge deal. It was going to be the arc of the book. It took me much longer to get started. So the main event ended up falling six months after I started playing, not a year. Did I change my plan? Did I actually do what I've just advised people to do? No, I did not. I decided, screw it. I said I was going to play this and I'm going to play it, goddammit. And I'm not even going to ask for advice. I had a coach. My coach was one of the best players in the world, Eric Seidel. I knew he'd tell me not to play deep down. So I didn't even ask him. <laughs> I just did it because I, I knew that I, he was going to say something that I didn't want to hear. So talk about, you know, motivated reasoning and, uh, and some selective, uh, selective information gathering. That's what I engaged in. And I ended up playing in the main event and lighting $10,000 on fire. It's a lot of money. Um, I couldn't afford that money, but, but I did it. Um, but, but the good news is I was writing a book. And so whenever I made a really, really stupid decision, there were two of me. There was the one of me making the stupid decision. And then there was the kind of metacognitive one of me who was looking at me making the stupid decision saying, this is going to make for really good copy in your book. <laughs> this is going to be a great scene. This is going to be a great lesson. And it helped me get through a lot, both bad decisions and also just bad situations, because I had to deal with a lot of really, really nasty stuff at the poker table. And I think one of the only reasons I was able to deal with it is to say, good copy. This is going to be a good scene. I'm going to be able to use this. And so I was able to separate myself from the immediate environment. Or as Walter would call it, I was able to cool the hot circumstances that were, that were arising 
around me. But yeah, after that, I realized, you know what? My timeline has shifted. Everything has shifted. I need to be willing to stay in. And so I started working harder. I was willing to change my deadline. I was willing to tell my editor, I can't give you the book right now. It's not ready. I was willing to put everything on hold for longer than I had planned to and have different end points and say, you know what? Okay, let me just keep going until I feel like I'm done. And it, that was a very different sort of plan from the beginning where I had a clear endpoint. I said, okay, I don't have a clear endpoint. I fucked up. Now let me, let me try to stay in and figure out what to do and figure out where it's going to go. And I was definitely, after making those bad mistakes, I was willing to completely change what I was doing. Um, I ended up spending three years on the poker circuit. So just, uh, just as a spoiler alert, this was much longer than the one year I had originally allocated. I think if there's one lesson that our listeners can take from this, it's that everything always takes longer than you expect it to. <laughs> For sure. And I also like that I'm writing a book as just a license to fuck up. You know, you could just pretend you're writing a book. Just tell yourself that in your head. It's like, it's okay. I'm writing a book. It's good material. It, it is great. I mean, my one of my idols... I was lucky enough to meet her early in my career as Nora Ephron, who I think is one of just the most inspiring women to have ever lived. And I'm very sorry that she died a premature death. Um, but one of her lines is something that I say to myself quite often. And what Nora Ephron said is, everything is copy. I mean, that's just such an iconic line. And it's something that's so true. And it's something that, you know... Try it. Next time you're in a really, really shitty situation, just pause for a moment. Like Pause your emotional reaction because you will be having an emotional reaction if you're in that shitty situation. Even if your name is Walter Michelle, you'd be having that emotional reaction. Walter knew this about himself. You know, studying self-control, being the self-control guru does not mean you're always able to hold it back. Everyone has triggers. Everyone has hot situations. So next time you're in that situation, just try to realize it's happening. Stop for a second. Shut up if you're talking or yelling or whatever it is you're doing. And just think quietly. Everything is copy. That's it. That's great advice. <laughs> All right. So I, I know we don't have you for that much longer. I know Mickey really wants to play a round of Laden Things. I wonder if we have time for that. We do. do we absolutely have time for one round of Laden Things. I will be the Laden, and Maria will explain what the game All is. All right. So this is an absolutely brilliant game created by two wonderful poker players, Phil Locke and Antonio Esfandiari, the former known as the Unabomber, um, because he always wears a hoodie and sunglasses, and the latter as the magician, because he used to be a bona fide magician. And one day they were playing poker on a televised table. They got really, really bored. And so they created this game. One person is the Laden. Laden is the last name of another poker player. And the Laden is asked a question. Let's say, what's the distance between the Earth and Jupiter? Now, the Laden has to think what their answer is. What do they think the distance is? And they write it down. And now the two other players or whoever else is playing have a chance to bid on the Laden's answer. So the crucial thing is the real distance between the Earth and Jupiter doesn't matter at all. All that matters is what this person thinks it is. And so I'll throw out a number. So I might say, you know, 10 million miles. And so you, Mickey, might say, okay, I accept the under, in which case we're done. Well, first we'll, we'll figure out how much money we're playing for. Let's say we're playing for $1. But in poker circles, this goes for thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. You can either accept the under, which means that you think that the Laden, who's going to be Yoel in this case, thinks that's less than 10 million miles, or you can propose a new number. So give me a new number. 10 million and one. <laughs> All right, fine. 10 million and one. So you're, you're going incrementally. Now I can either say I accept, which means I think that he thinks it's lower, or I can say 1 billion miles. All of a sudden I can go, and now you can say under or 
propose a new number and so on and so forth in, until one of us accepts the under. And then we ask Yoel what his actual number is and one of us wins. The beauty of this game is that the objective answer does not matter and can actually screw you up because of anchoring effects and all sorts of things. What you need to be good at doing is reading other people and trying to figure out what does this person think the answer is? What do I know about him? What can I read into his reactions and how he's actually watching our interaction? And how can I be the person who's closest to his view of the world? I mean, talk about an exercise in true empathy. Wow. Okay. So this is going to be quite a bit harder over Zoom. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're going to try it nonetheless. So Maria, do you, um, maybe you can propose the question. Oh, no, you guys have to have the question. You, you want to put you, you want to okay, play Mickey, the game. Mickey, uh, what's, what's the question? I came up with a question. I mean, but again, it's true. The answer doesn't matter. It's, it's what you think. No, the answer doesn't it, matter. It, yeah, at all. it can't be something where you already know what I would think, right? Yes, it does have to be. So I am trusting you. I'm I'm taking a flyer on the fact that you're not going we to We are very screw trustworthy. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um yeah. I believe you. <laughs> okay. Uh okay, here's a it's a sports question. Um oh my and I God. actually don't I don't know the answer to this. I think I kinda of know the answer, but I'm not sure. How many World Series uh have the New York Yankees won? How many World Series have the New York Yankees won? Okay, so now, so now Yoel has to has to come up with an answer okay. and write it down. I'm going to write it down. I barely knew, know that baseball is a sport. Okay, so there's no okay. there's no shared knowledge here whatsoever. Just to reassure you. Excellent, and I I actually don't know that baseball is a sport. So <laughs> great, so we're on the same we're page. The same here. Boat. <laughs> and I'm going. I'm I'm going to write down a number here. Okay, and maybe make sure we see your face here, well, like away from the mic. All right, so who's going to start? Do you want to start or do you want uh, me to start? You start? All right, I will start with four. So now you can say I accept or you can propose a number that's um, over. I'll, pro I'll propose <laughs> 11. <laughs> All right, I'm accepting the under. We're done. That's going to be a short one. Uh, yeah, Maria wins. I had eight. Ah! Oh, I don't know if it shows up. I, I think I have, I show too much on my face. You did I think that's my Yo, well, that was a, that was, a, that was a big tell. <laughs> what did I do? I don't even know what I do. Um, you just, you had this huge, the moment he said 11, you just had this huge smile. Like, whoa, that's a big number. Um, and that's what I was going on to, to realize that 11 was way too high. I mean, so I'm influenced by the actual real number. I know the number is around 27. <laughs> so I'm like, Jesus, really? Okay, so you you knew the real number. See, that's the thing. You have to chug your beer. That's that's the penalty. Yeah, I guess Maria, you didn't actually establish what you guys were playing for, but no, we're 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 this this was a friendly lot and things. But I think for psychologists, what a fascinating game, right? Absolutely. And I need to work on my <laughs> poker face. <laughs> We can we can have some poker face lessons. I want to ask one final question, and then we'll say goodbye. Um, All right. And uh, and you allude to this a lot in the book. Um, and I wonder, uh, you know, how has poker, you know, uh, what have you learned from poker outside of the, the you know the poker table? Uh, how has it affected your life? You know, uh, you know except other than financially, um, <laughs> in terms of the way you you go about making decisions. <laughs> This is this is like the the trick final question where you're like one final question and you can leave, but the answer to that question takes an hour, um, which which is this question because everything about poker translates to life, including what we've already talked about. I mean, the most important thing is this lesson of separating process from outcome, of focusing on what you actually can control. What a huge lesson to take to our daily lives. What can I control? Well, I can control my thoughts. I can control my emotions. I can control my actions. I can control my reactions. I can control the information I take in, what information I look for, how I process it. Those are all things that I control. I don't control you. 
I don't control your reactions. I don't control what's happening or any of these external circumstances. In some ways, you know, since we're talking to psychologists, this is going way back to locus of control and internal and external locuses. You know, this work done in the 50s and 60s. And it holds up incredibly well because learning to tell the difference and learning to have an internal locus for the right things and yet being able to reframe, you know, so many people get caught up on bad things happening and think, I'm so unlucky. This always happens to me. It's a terrible framing and it's something that's going to get you down. Being able to actually take a step back and reframe and say, okay, you know, what do I do? What can I do despite all of this stuff? How can I put myself in a position to move past this bad luck? to move past this stuff? How can I reassert agency? How can I take back control from a world that has all this stuff going on? I mean, that's the most important lesson. The Biggest Bluff, the title of the book, isn't about poker. It's not about any bluff I ran at the table. It's about a bluff I believe we have to tell ourselves, which is that we have more control over our lives than we actually do. Because I think that you know, chance plays such a huge part in everyone's lives. And if you actually stop and really, really think about the role of chance, you just basically want to give up. And you shouldn't. And the biggest bluff is acknowledging this and then saying, okay, what do I control? What can I change? What can I do? Let me just devote all of my energy to that. Screw the other stuff. It's just noise. Let me focus on me. Let me focus on my decisions, on my thoughts, on my actions, and let me actually let that be an impetus to the greatest agency possible at, to be a big actor in my life and to make choices that I do take responsibility for. To me, that's a necessity. It is a bluff, but it's a bluff that is one worth taking every single day of our lives. Amazing. All right. Well, Maria, I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Thank you much, so much for joining us. And uh, you'll have to come back and maybe I will have worked on not giving away the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would then. love to come back and I'm, I'm happy to play another round of Lot and Thanks with the two of you. And we'll see who wins. Fantastic.